0: Tell me when we're ready, Paul. We're ready? All right, let's do this. Good morning. good morning. God's good. Amen. Lord Jesus, we love you this morning. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to be here. Lord, it's our desire that the Spirit of God would touch our hearts deeply today. Lord, that the Holy Spirit would speak, that there would be... revelation lord we're not here to gather information we're here to hear your voice so we're calling upon you this morning as people who are hungry for your presence hungry for your spirit lord we're hungry for revival lord we want to be taught we want to hear the voice of god we want to see the move of the holy spirit through the land and that's why we're here and we're just gathered in your name for that purpose and for that honor And so, Lord, we pray that you would honor us with your presence, that you would honor us, Lord, with the speaking of the Holy Spirit, Lord, that today that there would be uh, the voice of God that is heard in the depths of our hearts. We so love you. We really do. We ask that you bless this time, make it work for eternity's sake, and we thank you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hallelujah. I open my eyes and there's two more. Look at that. <laughs> Hallelujah. Traffic. <laughs> 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 yeah. <laughs> Hallelujah. Well, this is our third Saturday here on the topic of cessationism—the false belief that the things of the spirit the outwardly manifestations of the Holy Spirit are not for today. uh, Something that um, I think we've seen the folly of a lot. A bit of review, a bit of new things today. We're going to ask God for his grace on this. In dealing with this subject, I have to deal with a variety of subjects to go along because things stand and fall together and I'm going to go back and start this morning a little bit of review what is our definition of the gospel what is our definition of the gospel because what you believe the gospel is will determine your your view on things like the gifts of the Holy Spirit so a bit of a review. In this culture, very much in this culture, but in also many other parts of the world, but very much in this culture, it appears to me, it appears to me that the gospel is simply defined or reduced to what I will call a personal salvation from the penalty of sin so that you can know that you will go to heaven when you die. And for some people, that is the entirety of the gospel message. That's the whole story to a lot of people. In a lot of congregations, they feel as if you have not preached the gospel unless you have made an appeal for someone to to accept christ so if you were to die tonight you know where you'd be going and and it's all reduced down to that one thing if that is our definition of what the gospel is then it is no wonder that there is no emphasis on pentecostal reality or the gifts of the holy spirit because they simply don't play into the gospel message that we're preaching just simply not there or Is the gospel more defined in the words of Jesus that the kingdom of heaven is breaking into history? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see, there are many people, and this being the 500th year of the Reformation, I think it's ironic that I would say things when a lot of people are celebrating 500th year. My reading of the Bible does not begin with the Reformation. I do not read my New Testament through the eyes of the Reformation. My reading of the Bible of New Testament goes back 2,000 years ago to Jesus. And I feel there's a lot of churches that begin their their understanding of the scripture starting with the Reformation as their starting point. As if the problem that the Reformers had 500 years ago with the Catholic Church, as if that was the same problem that Paul was having with the Judaizers 2,000 years ago. They're not the same problem. There are similarities between them, but they are not the same problem. And if we think that the Reformers dealt with the same issues that Paul the Apostle dealt with, with the Judaizers, uh, then we're already on false, a false foundation already, because we're assuming far too much. And as a result of the Reformation, now I'm, I'm speaking simplistically here and with a broad brush and please understand, I'm in great generalities here, and so don't try to make it fit every little little detail. But in, in generalities, the result of the fight of the Reformation over the the doctrine of justification by faith has reduced the gospel as if the whole gospel is justification. That's it. I'm going to argue that justification, while it is a New Testament word, was only used once on the lips of jesus himself and that's in the parable i think it's in luke 18 when he talked about a tax collector and a pharisee in the temple and they both went into the temple and god i thank you i'm not like that tax collector there you know that story and jesus said who you know i tell you that it was that tax collector who went home justified more than the the, the Pharisee. And that's the only time Jesus used the word justified. That's it. That's it. On the lips of Jesus, it's only once. And often the whole gospel is reduced down to the subject of justification. What does it cost to get your sins forgiven? And I have discovered that that's only one metaphor of many that the New Testament uses to describe a certain aspect of salvation. And why don't we talk about propitiation? That's just as good a word as justification. Propitiation. And here's an awful discovery. A lot of people don't even know what propitiation means. Do I dare ask for a show of hands? (laughs) You're propitiated as much as you are justified. What does propitiate mean? A lot of people don't even know adopted washed sanctified there's all kinds of metaphors but because of the the reformers fight with the idea of what does it cost to go to heaven that the one metaphor of justification has been raised above all the other metaphors and now it becomes the exclusive definition of salvation and to me speaking with a broad brush and with great generalities to me the Reformation has done that. And we end up having a a distorted view. Um, When we think that Paul had to deal with the same issues the the Reformers dealt with, we've got a false start in reading our New Testament. We have to go back to what Jesus dealt with. For instance, when we talk about, you know, say the rich young ruler came to Jesus. Good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? To the average evangelical today whose life has been shaped by the Reformation, they think that the rich young ruler is asking this question, how can I guarantee that I'm going to go to heaven when I die? They think that's what he's asking That is nowhere near what he is asking. How many have heard a message like that on the rich young ruler and it turns into, How can I get saved so I can go to heaven when I die? When the rich young ruler said, What must I do to inherit eternal life? He was not asking about life after death. He was asking about a quality of life that is typical of the reign of the kingdom of heaven. How can I possess the life of the kingdom? That's what he's asking. He's not asking about going to heaven when he dies. And yet so many of the stories and the evangelical preaching on these New Testament stories are all turned to make it ask a question he's not asking. The kingdom of heaven has come. That is the message of Jesus. That is the gospel of Jesus. Let me just use an illustration um, It's a little off topic for a second, but I'll bring it back uh, to topic. Uh, What a lot of people do in, in trying to interpret Scripture. If justification has now replaced the whole of salvation as if it was the one and only thing of salvation, there is great distortion that has taken place. Because I have traveled variety of places over the years to many many countries and cultures i realize that what is sin in one culture is not considered sin in another culture and that these our definitions more come out of our backgrounds and cultures than they do from revelation from the holy spirit or from scripture we, we culturally we just made a joke uh, uh, you know a while ago about a Pentecostal World Conference, and people from all over different countries of the world were gathered together, you know, in, in the name of Pentecost. And it was great until they all sat down for a meal. And then, when they sit down for a meal, there is one culture uh, someone said it was the Danish, but the Danish heard this and said, That's not us. But, but just, just to say it anyway, the Danish were there and they were so surprised that the french would drink wine with their meals how sinful they were so shocked at it that they dropped the cigarettes right out of their mouth you know i mean they they thought one thing was sinful and yet another thing wasn't and it's very culturally defined so let me take this phrase be holy for i the lord am holy okay there's the general principle holiness everybody here in this room would agree we need to be holy. We would probably differ a lot on what is holiness. We probably would differ a lot on that. I was just in India, which I'll talk about perhaps a little bit today. I was there for three weeks. And, um, you know, back when I grew up in Canada, in my generation, the, the big rage and the big issue was men and long hair you know, that, that was the massive issue I mean, oh, sin, sin, sin I mean, I would have been considered a sinner with the length of my hair you know, and I'd still like to grow longer actually you know, but, but it was, uh, you know <laughs> you know, but, but it was just ter- I was just in India men have got no problem with wearing really long hair longer than anybody's here, women included, no problem whatsoever. I mean, but, uh, and the earrings and stuff, and you know, oh, that'd be terrible. And, and yet, other cultures, it's quite fine and quite acceptable, and so on. And what does it mean to be holy? There's admonition. You know, avoid the appearance of evil. Now, in some cultures, if I go back to uh, uh, some of my experience way back yonder, avoid the appearance of evil. That might mean things like you don't go into a bowling alley, or you don't go into a pool hall, a billiards room, or you don't play. With a deck of cards. Because that is associated with gambling, the wrong kind of people gather in those kinds of places, and you as a believer don't want to be associated with that. Therefore, the application might be that playing cards is sinful, playing a game of billiards is sinful, playing a game of bowling in a bowling alley is considered sinful so in one culture be holy now becomes don't go to those places okay now here's the difficulty is that might be true in a certain culture that might be true in some cultures that could be very very true it's just the wrong crowds gather around such places that might be true But that's not true all over the world. Simply is not true all over the world. I can tell you, I could take you to cultures in the world today where church members refuse to play a game of checkers or a game of chess because of what it's associated with. Now the danger is this, is that we exchange the application as if it was equal power with the principle the principle is be holy the application everybody has to allow the Holy Spirit to make application to your particular circumstance and how the Holy Spirit applies it to your particular circumstance must not become the word of the Lord how other people will apply it in their circumstances because what you've done is you've made your personal application equal to scripture. You follow what I'm saying? Are you clear what I'm saying there? And so how the Holy Spirit applies it to you does not mean that's how the Holy Spirit is going to apply it to another culture somewhere else. Oh, they're sinful because they, they, they in their leisure time, they play with a deck of cards. They're sinful people. No, they're not. You hear what I'm saying? And, and what we do is we make an application you know talk about creating tradition you know we're against churches that create new traditions you know the catholics create traditions the protestants create conditions well so do pentecostal people you know and and you can't do that the principle is is eternal be holy but the application of it you have to get from the holy spirit for your circumstance and not turn it into law that applies to everybody, everywhere, at all times. We're guilty of because it's easier to follow law than it is to follow the Holy Spirit. But it's not easier, but we think it is. You know? And it, it's, the, the, print, the application must never take the place of the principle. Now, that's a poor illustration of trying what I'm saying, of, of what I'm attempting to say here, is that the one truth of justification must not take the place and replace the whole story of salvation. Must not. Otherwise, we have greatly distorted the message of the kingdom of heaven. Greatly distorted it. The One of the difficulties with that whole distortion is our the, the evangelical um, appreciation of the law I'm not under the law I'm under grace which to some people means I never have to read the law which means I have nothing to do with the Old Testament which means that it's really not important for me to study the law excuse me where did you come up with that thinking? Oh, how I love your law, is the testimony of the psalmist. How I love the law. It's my meditation day and night. I delight in my inward man after the law. That's even New Testament stuff. Where do we get this idea that we have nothing to do with the law because we're under grace? grace is not the absence of the righteousness of the law grace is the divine enablement and empowerment to desire and to fulfill the law not the absence of it it's the power to fulfill it but because we are not under the law by our definition of justification we have nothing to do with the law and so we're absolute eejits there's a good word I learned over here Agents, uh, when it comes to Old Testament stuff. Because we're not under it. You know, what, what a fractured, fractured, fractured uh, understanding. Because we wrongfully make the assumption, listen carefully what I'm going to say, we wrongfully make the assumption, thinking that, that the Reformers dealt with the same issue that Paul dealt with. You know, those 1,500 years between the two fights we make the wrong conclusion that we actually think the Jew tried to gain heaven by keeping the law that when by, by the works of law no man shall be justified we actually think that the Jew attempted a justification by keeping the law where do we get that from? There is no Jew in the world that ever would say, I'm going to earn my way into heaven by keeping the law. Never has that ever been in the mind of a Jew. Never. And yet we kind of take it as if that's just the way they tried to get justification. And we're misreading so much of the scripture because we're starting with the wrong premise. The Jew did not keep the law in order to become the people of God. He kept the law because he was a member Of the people of God. An imperfect illustration, wedding vows. When you gave your wedding vows, the day you said, I do, I promise, I will be true to you and you only, did you say that and put yourself under legalism when you committed yourself and your wedding vows to your spouse? You consider yourself now bound by the law? Be careful how you answer that question because depending on how you answer that question determines what kind of marriage counseling I will have to give you. No, no, no. When you said, "I, I freely, voluntarily, I'm going to be faithful to you and you only. Is that legalism? Or is that love? You put yourself in covenant because of love's sake. The covenant is proof of love. You're not putting that covenant in order to be accepted. You're giving that covenant because you're in love. A Legal obligation. obligation. Yeah. You're you're keeping yourself in that covenant because of love's sake. And that's how the Jew approached the law. They love the Lord. And because they love the Lord, they're going to have no other gods before him. Because they love the Lord, they're not going to take his name in vain. It's the obligations of love. It is not trying to earn your way into God's favor. You follow what I'm saying? And and, and yet, a lot of times we think that the struggle that that Paul had with the Jews is that the Jews were actually trying to gain God's favor. That wasn't the issue. So we need to learn to reread. Because here we are, reading the New Testament, as if that's the same struggle that the Reformers had with the Catholics in the Reformation. And it has distorted the way we read a lot of our New Testament. And it has really distorted our understanding of what the Gospel is. And it has really distorted the role of the Holy Spirit in the Church, and in the Gospel, and in the present Kingdom of Heaven that has come to invade history. An important principle. I'm going to ask a key question, and I'm going to come back to this question more than once today. Now here's the key question. Why did the old covenant fail? Why did the old covenant fail, and why does God introduce a new and a better covenant And what is it about that new covenant that makes it new and better? We've got to answer that question. We've got to answer that question. Now, the scriptures answer that question very abundantly. We're not in a mystery, and we don't have to look far to find out the answer to that question. Why did the old covenant fail? Why does God have to introduce a new covenant? And what makes the new covenant better? the answer is very easily found in scripture a key passage amongst many passages would be second corinthians chapter three about the ministry of the letter and the ministry of the spirit a key passage would be let me write reduce it down to this the old covenant with the laws written on tables of stone here's the weakness of it there's nothing wrong with the law Romans 7, the law is just, the law is good, the law is holy. There is nothing wrong with the law whatsoever. Where it failed was this. It was not accompanied by the empowering spirit. Write that in your notes. In the Old Covenant, the law was written on tables of stone, and it was not accompanied by the empowering Holy Spirit. That's Second Corinthians 3, through and through. Just read that chapter over and over. It was not accompanied by the empowering Holy Spirit. Therefore, since it was not accompanied, there was no ability of transformation, there was no empowerment, Therefore, the law could only condemn. It could show you what was right, but it could not empower you to do what was right. And therefore, it ended up as condemnation. But there's nothing wrong with the law. The law is good, it's holy, it's just, it's correct. But it had no power to change you. Therefore, it raised a standard that you could not fulfill and it ended up as condemnation. It failed to transform because there was no accompanying spirit. Well, if we can see that, then all of a sudden you can understand why we need the spirit. I mean, it just opens up the whole New Testament, and you see that was the main failure, the reason for failure of the Old Covenant. Therefore, how can we read the Old Testament prophets Without picking up time and time and time again the voice of the Old Testament prophets, their longing, their passion, their great focus was going to be on the day when God would pour out His Spirit on all flesh. Because that's what was missing. That's why it failed. And so the great passion, the great longing, the great desire of the prophets was for the day when God would pour out His Spirit upon all flesh. When, according to the prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they made statements like this, the law would be written internally upon the tables of a new heart. That's why it failed before, because it wasn't written in the heart. It was written on tables of stone, no empowerment by it but now the law was going to be written on the tables of in a new heart by the pen of the holy spirit new hearts refashioned hearts transforming us and empowering us from the righteousness on the inside that the law of god was going to come alive on the inside create within you you you're going to discern new desires within you new appetite within you. And not only new appetite but the power to fulfill it and walk it out. That's what makes the New Testament the New Testament it comes with spirit. It comes with spirit. And when I say that I'm going to say it in this way it doesn't just come with spirit it comes with dynamic charismatic power not just a silent, unfelt influence, like leaven in the bread, you don't really know what's there until a long time after you say, well, the bread did rise. No, it's dynamic. It is lavish. It's empowering. It is charismatic. It is, it is life from the dead. It's raising dead bones and making an army out of them. There, what I have said before... Cessationist people would say, Well, I agree with that, yeah. But here's where I differ with them. No, the Holy Spirit is dynamic, charismatic, powerful, lavish, alive, demonst- demonstrative, manifest. Not just a quiet influence in the background, but hey, Holy Spirit has come to rule. He's come to take over. The Holy Spirit, now, now the Lord is that Spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is. There's liberty. I'm not talking about an unfelt influence here. I'm talking about power. Power. And that's what was missing in the old covenant. There was no accompanying power. Doesn't mean the Holy Spirit wasn't working. In prophets and priests and judges and, 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 and kings and so on. But I'm talking about. All flesh being empowered. All flesh being empowered. The New Testament describes the gospel that Jesus preached. And forgive me for this repetition, but I hope you never get tired of it. Was this. The kingdom of heaven has arrived. If you take the word kingdom out of your Bible, you have just stripped Jesus of all his teaching. Now, I I need to emphasize that because I was forever exposed from a young teenager till now to evangelical church life. And I'm trying to rack my brain. Did I ever hear in all the local churches I was ever a part of, did I ever hear a message about the kingdom of heaven? Ever. And you know what the answer is? I can't remember a single one that I did have to go and search it out for myself. I can't remember a single one. And yet, that is the key message of Jesus. The Reformation has substituted justification and replaced the message of the kingdom of heaven. It's my passionate plea. We've got to get back to Jesus and his message of the kingdom. We've got to do it. Now, it's interesting. That was the message that Jesus preached. There's no doubt about it. However, what does the word kingdom mean today to people? Listen to this interesting little tidbit. If I asked a Catholic, when you hear the word kingdom, what does it mean? A typical response from a Catholic would be this. The kingdom means the visible church. That's the kingdom. If I was to ask a Protestant what it means, you know what his answer would be? His answer would be, it's the invisible church. The Catholics do it as the visible church. The Protestants do it as the invisible church. Which is right? Do I dare say neither? Neither. Jesus definition of the kingdom is that the rule of God has come with power and authority and is breaking into human history the rule of God has come with power and authority and is breaking into history that's the gospel And when I say that, I am saying it very definitely that it means this that it comes with power. The kingdom of God is not something that is just preached, the kingdom of God is something that is demonstrated. It is not just preached, it is demonstrated. And we've got to get that definition deep into our hearts because now we're going to talk about why we need the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Because the gospel is a demonstration, not just a declaration, but a demonstration of the power of God. Matthew twelve twenty eight. If I, by the Spirit of God, cast out demons... Then you know that the kingdom has come nigh. 1 Corinthians 4.20. The kingdom is not in word only, but in power. When Jesus sent his disciples out, it was not just to declare, but it was to declare and demonstrate. That's the message of the kingdom of heaven. It's more than declaration. It's demonstration that the kingdom is. Is breaking into human history. It's a demonstration. So that's when Jesus ministered, and when he sent his disciples out to minister, it says every time you read it, well, either Jesus himself or when he sends his disciples out, he always tells them to do a couple of things heal the sick, cast out the demons, in some cases, raise the dead. Cleanse the lepers. Make a declaration. The gifts of the Spirit are not the gospel itself. The gospel itself is the kingdom of heaven has come, but the gifts of the Spirit are the demonstration of it. All right? The gifts of the Spirit are the demonstration of it. Very, very important. The kingdom of God is a new covenant relationship where we're led by the Spirit. We're walking in the power of the Holy Spirit in intimacy with God. We are not preaching just about God. We're demonstrating the presence of God. We are not talking about a distant God. We're preaching about a God that has come nigh in the power of the Holy Spirit. He's not afar off. He's close by. He is right here. I don't know how much of this to share with you, a bits and pieces, but um, I was just in India for three weeks. took six members of the congregation with me. I was in Hyderabad for a week uh, at the drop-in conference on my own. Finished that, I flew up to North India to a state called Meghalaya, Shillong, Tura, cities there, where I had six people from the congregation join me over there. We had spent three or four months preparing people to go. I've taken the role of being a father and a mentor to people. I had spent the three or four months training people to preach in other cultures. Training people to give testimony in other cultures. Training people to work with interpreters. Never done that before. Training people to go into the villages and lay hands upon people. Very intensive training. A lot of prayer time together. A lot of one-on-one counseling, a lot of mentoring, a lot of fathering people. Uh, really working with them. Took them out and really gave them a wake-up call because the first couple of days are dealing with orphanages and so on. I says, well, we're going to kick this up another gear. Tomorrow we're leaving orphanages and I'm taking you out into villages where they are what we call animistic villages. And by the word animistic means like animal, it means it means they believe in spirits in all kinds of things. There's a spirit in the tree. There's a spirit in the dog. There's a spirit in the ground, and they're very very alive and open to spirit, whether it's holy spirit or evil spirit, you know. And actually gave them a real scare in a sense. We're going to these villages, and what are you going to do if there's absolute wild, demonic manifestations as you're preaching? What are you going to do with it? You know, and we talked all through that. Boy, we had some prayer meetings. <laughs> you know, I so said, we're going out, out to this. And what are we going to do while we're there? What's the purpose in going? What kind of a gospel are you going to share? What kind of a gospel are you going to preach? And I also made this rule: We're going into the villages. I am going to do almost nothing. You're preaching. You are going to lay hands upon the people in the villages. You are going to have to deal whatever manifests, and I am sitting back and just watching you do it. Which I did, which I did. They all did superbly well. They've all got stories to tell of the power of God. I mean, some of these people have never seen these things happen before, and they're starting laying hands on the villagers, and the villagers are just falling out in the power of God. You know, just where they are in the village, they're just falling out in the power of God. You know, I've never seen that happen before. I said, go for it. Go for it just do it and not that falling on the ground is a big anything i've seen so much of that over the years but for these people i said wow this is incredible and in one village and i'm hesitant to tell the story because i, I i'm going to let them tell the story but since you're not part of the congregation i'll tell you the story you just keep it mum until they start testifying the story themselves In one village, there was a boy with an arm twisted and gnarled uh, like that. And the doctors had given no hope for it whatsoever. And as our own team, you know, prayed for this boy, the thing straightened out by 90%. You know, go, go for it. Come on. Let's do it. Let's do it. You know, talk about excitement. They came home excited. They came home excited, you know, and the the presence and the power of God, and, and, and what a joy. We're not just proclaiming you can go to heaven when you die. We're proclaiming the kingdom of heaven has come to invade and to displace and dispel spiritual darkness and ruin out of your lives and out of your villages and out of your homes. The kingdom of heaven has come to rule and overturn the powers of darkness. That's the gospel. And a byproduct of it is, yes, you do get to go to heaven when you die. But it's the power of God. The power of God. It's the power of God. And my heart is so much more. At this stage in my life, I just want to father people. I want to mentor people. If people will have a submissive attitude, and I've come to this point in my life that I realize that there's all kinds of people with all kinds of needs in their lives. But I, but tell you what, unless you're going to take a role of submission towards me. And unless you're going to be teachable and pliable, I can't do anything with you. No matter how hungry you might be, if you think you know more than the master, there's not much the master can teach you. And it's just the brokenness and contrition, the meekness, the humility, the pliability, the contrition, when people can come in that attitude of brokenness and say, I want to learn, then we can go far with them. We can go far. and I'm looking for a, a generation of people who are ready to be taught and have the right attitude and the right submissive attitude towards it. And if we just pour into them and pour into them and give them the teaching, give them the training, and then take them out there and, and just release them. Man, what couldn't happen? That's where my heart is. That's where my, 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 my passion is. That's what we need. The kingdom of heaven has come. The kingdom of heaven has come. There's much to be gained if we will pay the price. If we will pay the price in passionate prayer, there is much to be gained. I'm looking for a generation of people who will join me in passionate prayer and asking God for breakthrough and breakthrough and breakthrough. Who will pay the price of fighting through the discouragement when it seems that nobody cares? Who will pay that price? You know, God wants to move by His Spirit. He really, really does. When I use the word gospel, I want you to think, kingdom of heaven. When I use the word kingdom of heaven I want you to think new covenant. When I use the word new covenant I want you to think the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. To me those four terms are the one and the same thing. The gospel is the kingdom of heaven which is the new covenant which comes with the empowering Holy Spirit. And I will not reduce the gospel to anything less than that gospel is the kingdom of heaven which is the new covenant which is divine empowerment of the holy spirit i will not reduce any more than that comes with power when jesus commissioned his disciples Matthew 10, Mark 6, Luke 9, Luke 10, all of those passages of scripture, that they, they went with power. They went with dynamite. They went with authority. They preached in word and they demonstrated in deed. There's no doubt about that. When Jesus called disciples to be with himself in Mark 3, 14 and 15, he spends the night in prayer. Then he rises up and he calls to 12. And, it's, and it says, well, number one, they were called to be with him. But second thing, they were called to have power, to cast out demons. I found that interesting. Not just to be with them, but they were called to be given power, to demonstrate the kingdom, not just to preach it. Is that not the same as god's mandate to adam in the garden of eden where god would come and walk in the cool of the day and they'd be with him but were they not also given the command to keep the evil out of the garden was that not there right back and with adam in the garden and it seems to me that the same mandate that god gave adam in the garden is the same mandate that jesus is giving his disciples it's just the same thing indeed to be with jesus means you're going to be mighty in word and mighty in deed as well. Let me kick gears here to the subject of prayer. Change gears to the subject of prayer. If you heard me teach on the subject of prayer, you know my definition of prayer, and I'll repeat it for you. Prayer is not telling God what to do. God, I think this. God, I think that. My opinion is you should be doing this. My opinion, you're too slow on that matter. My opinion is that person needs this. And and you're telling God how to rule the world through your own whims. Prayer is not telling God what to do. Prayer is agreeing with God in what he has revealed he desires to do. Prayer is agreeing with God in... What he has revealed, he desires to do. Now, I want you to think on that. Agreeing with God in what he has revealed, he desires to do. And that, of course, takes the Holy Spirit. Because you need the Holy Spirit to reveal to you what God wants to do. Yes, the general principles of Scripture, but how are they going to be specifically applied? timing, purpose, and all that kind of thing has to be revealed by the Holy Spirit. We have to be led by the Spirit in prayer. Now, I'm going to ask you to rack your brains for a minute. I want you to think through all the prayers that you know exist in the New Testament. In the epistles, in the book of Acts, here's my question. What is the content of those prayers? Will of God? And so I'm making you think here. Here's my answer the majority of prayers recorded in the New Testament are for power and revelation. Power and revelation. Now I'll show you some of them. Power and revelation. In Acts chapter 4, when the church was being persecuted, how did they respond to the persecution in their prayer? What did they cry out for? Lord, behold their threatenings. Therefore, stretch forth your hand that in the name of your holy child, Jesus, signs and wonders and miracles might be done. They were praying for the miracles to be multiplied while the church was being persecuted. Is that how we pray? They're just asking, Lord, see the power of the world? How about you responding with a demonstration of your own power? That's how they prayed. Now, let's go back to hebrews chapter 8 verses 8 to 12 which is quoting jeremiah 31 31 to 34 all right now these passages are going to describe to us what the new covenant is okay what the new covenant is and we've gone through this before but let me say it to you again here's the new covenant The New Covenant is the laws of God are going to be revealed and written internally upon the tables of a new heart. The Old Covenant is they were written on tables of stone. The New Covenant is that they are written internally by the Spirit of God on the tables of your heart. All right. The New Covenant is this. Everybody will personally, intuitively know God for yourself. You don't have to say to your neighbor, what is it like to hear God speak? Because you will hear him for yourself. Everybody will hear God speak to them personally. You will have a witness of the Spirit within your spirit. You will hear the voice of God. Writing his laws on the tables of your heart, he will speak to you. You will know him yourself. What else is New Covenant? I will be your God, you will be my people. I hope you understand what that means. That is just not a theory. That means in practical, everyday living there will be a demonstration of the power of God to show the world that I am your God. It is not just a theory. When it says, I will be your God, you will be my people, that means God is going to demonstrate himself in power to show the world that he is your God. And that's what makes you different. You see, think of the Old Testament story of Exodus. The ten plagues. How many times in that story do you hear this? And then they'll know that I am the Lord your God. Then Egypt will know there's none like me. I am the Lord your God. And so when it says in the new covenant that the result is going to be and I will be your God and you will be my people, that is equal to saying there will be demonstrations of power that distinctly mark you out from the rest of the world. As I'm your God because just look at my power that I am doing there's no God that can do what I'm doing answers to prayer the persevering the breakthroughs in your life I'll be your God that's new covenant stuff that's New Testament that's not just a theory that somehow we're just going to go to heaven when we die as if that's what it means, I will be your God. No, it means there's going to be a demonstration of the power of God that's going to distinguish you as remarkable people. That's New Testament stuff. And then, of course, the forgiveness of sins. Your sins and your iniquities I will remember no more. Now, let me back up from last session when we looked at this verse. We have Tended to reduce the new covenant to just the forgiveness of sins, but if we could read this properly, the forgiveness of sins, remembering our iniquities no more, is not the goal of the new covenant. Is God being your God is the goal of the new covenant Its the law written on the tables of your heart is the goal of the new covenant it's hearing the voice of god speak to you the holy spirit bearing witness with your spirit that's the new covenant but to get there we have to deal with the problem of our sins and so the sins are dealt with your sins your iniquities i remember no more now that that's taken care of that opens the door for the outpouring of the holy spirit so you can hear god speak in other words, the forgiveness of sins is the entry into the things of, of the new covenant. It is not the end of the new covenant. You follow what I'm saying? It's not the end purpose of the new covenant. It's the entry. Deal with the problem of sins so God can be your God. And yet we've taken just the forgiveness of sins as if that was the beginning and the ending of what the new covenant's all about. Thank God for the forgiveness of sins, but it's the door to the new covenant coming in power. So listen again. What, what's the, what's the, the new covenant? God revealing himself to you personally. You hearing the voice of God. God writing his laws on the tables of your heart and your mind. God demonstrating himself in power that he is your God and you are his people. It's the forgiveness and the cleaning out of our old life, the healing of relationships. So let me put it this way. The goal of the New co- the themes of the New Covenant is revelation, power, and healing human attitudes. That's the New Covenant. With that in mind, now I want you to think through a lot of your New Testament prayers and see what they're about. I'll give you an example. Let's just go to Paul's opening prayer in Ephesians. Once we see what the new covenant is, let's go to Ephesians chapter 1. And he has a lengthy prayer, verses 15 to 23. Now, let's see how much of this prayer is in agreement with what the new covenant is. First uh, Ephesians one fifteen. For this reason, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now, what's the content of the prayer? Let's remember what the new covenant is. What is it? Revelation and power. Okay? Let's see what he prays for. Verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory... May give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your understanding enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, and what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in His saints. What is that praying for? Revelation. Have your eyes understand. May the Holy Spirit speak to you. May the Holy Spirit impart to you. May you hear the teaching of the Holy Spirit. That's new covenant stuff. That's what the new covenant is. The Holy Spirit to speak to you. So what's the prayer? May may the Holy Spirit be speaking to you. Opening your eyes. Opening your wisdom. Opening your understanding. Opening your vision. And then look at verse 19 where the prayer goes. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? according to the working of his great might when he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and dominion above every name is to be named not only in this world but also in the world to come put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all Phew, Paul knew how to write a sentence didn't he what's that prayer for power May you know the revelation of the Holy Spirit. May you know the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the... Con- if I give the summary of his prayer, that's it. So again, how does that compare to what the new covenant is? That is the new covenant. So you see, if we can understand that way, all of Paul's prayers are just saying, may you experience the fullness of the new covenant. That's what the prayers are. And what is that? That you would hear God. That you would know God. That you would be taught by God. That the Holy Spirit would be your teacher, your guide, your leader. That you would know the empowerment, the enablement of the Holy Spirit. That you know the greatness of his power. So all of Paul's prayers are geared along those lines. That you may grow in revelation and grow in power. Because that's the new covenant. That's what was missing out of the old covenant. That's the new. And all the prayers of Paul the Apostle lean into those realities. That's why we pray. And and so, if you hear me, pray. You might think I'm a broken record. What's Eugene praying for? You know what I'm praying for? God, I've got to have your presence. Lord, we're going to have church here. And if we don't have your presence, this is a waste of our time. Lord, we're having a teaching here on a Saturday morning, but if you're, your spirit's not here, this is a waste of our time. We need his presence. We need his spirit. We need his enablement. If all you hear today is information, this is a lost cause. I want the Holy Spirit to put light bulbs on in your head, light bulbs in your soul. I want you to see. Otherwise, this is a waste of time. We need the presence of the Holy Spirit. I think people back in home church must get sick and tired of me praying out loud because I always pray for the same thing. God, we've got to have your presence. We've got to have your presence. You've got to break through in your presence. Just for the fun of it, go to Colossians. And go to chapter 1 of Colossians and see if the same principle is not there. In Colossians 1, say verses 9 to 12 again look at his prayer look at his prayer and again i'm just going to ask you to see are are, are you catching the drift the overall drift what what is shaping how he prays what is shaping how he prays remember what's the new covenant revelation and power okay let's look how he prays in colossians 1 9 and so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. What's that? That not revelation? Lord, speak to me, teach me. You know, so you can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, being bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. Isn't that revelation? And then, what else does He pray? And may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all patience and endurance with joy giving thanks to the Father. What's that for? Power. You see, in general terms, every time Paul's praise is actually Lord, may the people of God enter into the fullness of what the new covenant is. And generally speaking, It's revelation, it's power, and it's healing of all relationships. And all the prayers of Paul are fashioned according to those themes. You know, so that's powerful stuff. So let the way we pray be shaped by the goals of the new covenant. How many times do you see the word grace and peace? When Paul opens an epistle, grace and peace be to you. Again, what is your definition of the word grace? Generally, most people say unmerited favor. It is unmerited favor, but let's not reduce it to that. Grace means divine enablement, the ability to do what you cannot do. All the gifts of the Spirit are grace gifts. They're charismas, portions of grace. And so when you see all of these epistles open up with grace and peace be to you, when he's saying grace be to you, what's he asking for? May your life be filled with unmerited favor? Well, may it be, but it's far more than that. May you know God's divine enablement. May you know the presence and the power of God lifting you above the circumstances of your life. May you find his ability coming into your heart, into your soul. May you find his strength to face whatever this world's thrown at you. Grace be to you. That means empowerment, enablement to you. It means far, far more than unmerited favor. Far, far more than that. You know is this grace given to me, which means it's this ability to minister to you is given to me. This grace given to me. What is peace but the healing of relationships? Grace and peace, enablement and harmony in life with people. Isn't that New Covenant stuff? Isn't that what the New Testament is all about? So, just for the fun of it, too much now to work through All right? Just for the fun of it. Um, In in Paul's epistles, he always starts off with, you know, from the Father, grace and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Where does he mention the Spirit in those greetings? Now here's the thought for you instead of mentioning the Spirit directly after he talks about the grace and peace from God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ, what he does do is he go on to describe what the Holy Spirit will do. he describes the workings of the Holy Spirit. I mean where do I even begin? with all of this. There's so many scriptures, I don't even know which ones to choose from. 1 Corinthians 1, he talks about, you know, from the Father and from the Son, and then he immediately gets into a discussion, I thank my God that you are enriched with all kind of utterance and gifts. Mention of the Holy Spirit. It's just frequently, that we catch that let me just make some remarks from the gospel of John and then we'll take a break Um, the way that John wrote his gospel is is interesting and it's unique some people think that John wrote uh, to help believers who were being persecuted by unbelieving Jews um, thrown out of a, a synagogue and excluded from the temple and so on. Here's a lens for which you help you read the Gospel of John. Jesus models for us the process of what it means to hear God and to obey God. How many times in John's Gospel do you hear Jesus make statements like this? The things that I say are not my words, but are the words of him who sent me. It is not me that does the works, but is the Father in me. The doctrine that I am speaking is not my doctrine, but it's of the one who has sent me. I only do the things that I see my father do. How many times do you read words like that in the Gospel of John? Now, what's interesting here is this. The doctrine of faith, believing. John uses that word a lot. Believe, believe, believe. Believing happens By hearing God's voice. The issue in the Gospel of John is how you hear and obey God. Now, there's a couple of times in John's Gospel where Jesus is going to say this to the religious scribes and the Pharisees He says, You've got Moses, and you've got the law, and you've got the scriptures. But never once have you heard God. I'm going to say that again. You spent your life with the scriptures. You spent your life in the law. You spent your life as a student of Moses. But you have never once heard God. I come hearing God and I'm speaking the words of God because I'm only saying what God himself has spoken and you with your lifetime of religion have never heard God once with all your scriptures. No wonder they stoned him. No wonder they stoned him. Let's just see if I can find those scriptures. I don't know if i got a mark here, but I'm going to take a, a poke and see if I can find it for you. 847. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason you do not hear them is you are not of God. Um... Where can I find it? I didn't mark them down here. He says some pretty pointed things to them. I think it's around chapter seven, chapter eight, where those statements are made. Now I wish I could find them. I don't see them right in front of me. some pretty powerful statements that he made in all your years of the scriptures you've never heard God speak what Jesus does is that he modeled hearing God speak to him personally and then speaking and ministering out of his communion with God that's new covenant stuff the Holy Spirit speaks to us and we respond out of the working of the Holy Spirit not just from the cold scriptures, but from the spirit of God bearing witness within our hearts and within our spirit. And that's because hearing God and then doing, hearing and doing, hearing and doing, is what Jesus models for us in the Gospel of John. And that is the the new covenant. And with that... We will take ourselves maybe a 10, 15-minute break. All right? Let's do it.